evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasedarata.com. Let's start tonight with a story about Indigenous knowledge being forefronted in the battle against deforestation and land degradation. Now, I've talked about this before, but I suspect it's been a few years. So, did you know that when people first reached South America, the rainforest didn't exist in the way it does now? And so, it was kind of typical rainforest with poor soils and um, pretty untouched. But archaeologists have found that the South American rainforest has been substantially changed across the last several thousand years by indigenous people. So, for instance, if you've ever heard of the lost city of Z, that refers to a culture that lived and had substantial habitation within the rainforest before the arrival of the Spanish. And so, um, probably about 20 years now uh, ago, they went and they found all of these places in the rainforest that were these large circular mounds where people had been farming in the rainforest, and they found that that soil was really, really nutrient-rich. And so, unfortunately, though, with the coming of the Spanish, so too came the ravages of disease and the conquering of peoples throughout the region. And so these places were basically forgotten about to an extent. But Domesticated species of trees and other plants are distributed around archaeological sites that were, again, once thriving in pre-Columbian times. And so much of this happened between 450 BC and 950 AD, when indigenous peoples in Amazonia used charcoal from fires used for cooking and burning refuse, as well as animal bones, broken pottery, compost and manure to add to the uh, sort of initial weak soil that is associated with rainforests. And so this ended up over thousands of years um, or over a thousand years uh, resulting in a specific type of soil called Amazonian dark earth or ADE, also known as terra preta. And so this soil is exceptionally fertile due to a richness of nutrients and stable organic matter derived from that charcoal, which gives it the distinctive black hue and fills it with carbon. Researchers in Brazil believe that reproducing this soil's properties might be a key not only to Amazonian reforestation, but reforestation across the world. And so um, it's important to note that even though they're using uh, ADE, they're using it from places that have it already in the Amazon. And so um, it's just important to remember that they want to sort of get the best properties of this rather than recreate it since that takes such a long time. And so... They've published their results in the journal Frontiers in Soil Science. 
Here we show that the use of ADEs can enhance the growth of pasture and trees due to their high levels of nutrients, as well as to the presence of beneficial bacteria and archaea in the soil microbial community, said joint lead author Louise Felipe Zagato, a graduate student at the Center for Nuclear Energy and Agriculture at Sao Paulo University in Brazil. This means that knowledge of the ingredients that make ADEs so very fertile could be applied to help speed up ecological restoration projects. And so in order to test this hypothesis, they gathered ADE from the Calderao Experimental Research Station in the Brazilian state of Amazonas, as well as a control cultural soil from the Luis de Quilleros Superior School of Agriculture in the state of Sao Paulo. They then filled 36 pots with soil in a greenhouse set to temperatures expected to be uh, present in the future, which is pretty darn hot. Uh, one third were filled with 100% ADE. One third were filled with a four to one mixture of control soil to ADE. And the final third with only control soil. They first imitated pastures that have replaced rainforests by planting palisades grass, a common forage for livestock in Brazil, and letting those seedlings grow for 60 days. They then cut the grass, leaving the roots in the soil to mimic a ripe, a pasture ripe for reforestation. They then planted each of the three soils with tree seeds. Three kinds of trees were planted. Ambi pumpwood, Peltiforum dubium, or Cedro Blanco. They then allowed the trees to grow for 90 days. And during this time, the researchers did detailed analyses of the soil. They examined changes in pH, texture, and concentration of organic matter, potassium, calcium, magnesium, aluminum, sulfur, boron, copper, iron, and zinc, as well as changes in microbial diversity in the soil. They found that ADEs had started with greater amounts of nutrients, including 30 times more phosphorus and three to five times more of all the other nutrients except manganese. And at the end of the experiment, while nutrients had fallen in each case due to being incorporated into plant matter, the ADE soils remained richer than those in the control group with an intermediate result for the mixed soils. They also found that throughout the experiment, the ADE-rich soils retained, retained a greater biodiversity of bacteria and archaea. Microbes transform chemical soil particles into nutrients that can be taken up by plants. Our data shows that ADE contains microorganisms that are better at this transformation of soils, thus providing more resources for plant development, said joint lead author Anderson Santos de Freitas. For example, ADE soils contained more beneficial taxa of the bacterial families. Penobaciliaceae, Plenococcaceae, Micromonosporaceae, and Hyphomicroblacea. Additionally, in all cases, 
both the Palisades grass and all three t- all three tree saplings did better in the 20% ADE and even better in the 100 ADE soils. So when you look at the pictures, there's like a really nice tree growing up, you know, a foot or so in the 100% ADE soils. It's usually a few uh, inches lower in the uh, 20% ADEs and it's significantly smaller in the uh, control soils, if it grew at all. And in fact, the ambe pumpwood actually wasn't even able to grow in the control soils, but still thrived in the ADE soils. Now, again, ultimately, there is still work to be done to make this a viable plan. And so uh, senior author Dr. Sui Mui Sai uh, noted, ADE has taken thousands of years to accumulate and would take an equal time to regenerate in nature if used. Our recommendations aren't to utilize ADE itself, but rather to copy its characteristics, particularly its microorganisms, for use in future ecological restoration projects. But if this can be done, if we can figure this out, it may, it may well prove to be a game changer for reforestation programs. And goodness knows we could use some good news on the reforestation front. Um, yeah. <sighs> uh, one of the things that I think we could also be doing, which I try a little bit, but I don't do enough, is switching to uh, materials that are made of bamboo because bamboo is a ridiculous weed that grows everywhere and can't be stopped. It's almost as bad as not weed. Um, And so I think that the more that we can find ways to use uh, both bamboo and hemp, obviously hemp is also good. Uh, Instead of trees, the better off we'll be. So yeah. Anyways... Let's move on now to talk about ancient DNA. Researchers have recently been able to extract the DNA of an ancient woman from a pierced deer tooth pendant found in the now famous Denisova cave in southern Siberia. And so at various points in history, this cave has been home to Denisovans, Neanderthals, and anatomically modern humans. And I just wanted to sort of dwell on that for a second. So a lot of times people think all three groups were there at the exact same time. And, you know, we do see some crossover where we do see um, at least one or two uh, Denisovan-Neanderthal crossovers and probably some Neanderthal and anatomically modern humans, but I don't remember specifically. But the cave was occupied for a very long time. And so at some points it would have had Denisovans, at some Neanderthals, at other anatomically modern humans. And at times, again, they might have mixed, but they weren't all just living together in a big, you know, (laughs) happy family of all three kinds of hominid. Um, So yeah, just to, I think sometimes people think about it as just having been occupied by all three at the same time. And that's not necessarily the case. And so being able to extract DNA information about 
who may have used or worn ancient artifacts of stone, bones, and teeth can help us to better understand concepts like the division of labor and social roles of individuals in ancient populations who had not yet developed specific burial rites uh, in the Paleolithic. So basically, once people start uh, developing burial rites, then people get buried with kind of the tools of their trade or things that are associated with them. And it becomes a little easier to tell, like this person was probably a chief or a, you know, revered elder, or this person was a mom, um, you know, things like that. When you have grave goods, those grave goods goods are usually there uh, because they were important to the person or because they believed that they would be useful to them in the afterlife. And so you get a little bit more information. But during the Paleolithic, generally, if people were buried, they weren't buried with grave goods. Um, a lot of times they were just buried with things like ochre, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but um, they weren't really being buried with specific grave goods that give us good information about what their uh, civilization was like. And so an international team led by the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, has developed a novel non-destructive method for isolating DNA from bones and teeth. Now, obviously, the Paleolithic, most objects are made of stone, but bone and teeth are a better um material for this research because they are more porous and thus are more likely to have absorbed uh, and kept hold of traces of ancient DNA from the person via things like skin cells, sweat, and other bodily fluids. And so the researchers first needed a proof of concept that would ensure that the ancient artifacts would not be damaged by the process. The surface structure of Paleolithic bone and tooth artifacts provides important information about their production and use, therefore preserving the integrity of the artifacts, including microstructures on their surface, was a top priority, says Marie Ceresi, an archaeologist from the University of Leiden and co-supervisor of the project along with Matthias Meyer, a geneticist from Max Planck. Their work is published in the journal Science. The team went through a variety of chemicals to test their influence on artifacts before settling on a phosphate-based method for DNA extraction. One could say we have created a washing machine for ancient artifacts within our clean laboratory, explains Elena Essel, the lead author of the study who developed the method. By washing the artifacts at temperatures of up to 90 degrees Celsius, that's 194 degrees Fahrenheit, we are able to extract DNA from the wash waters while keeping the artifacts intact. And so the team first used artifacts from the French cave of Quincy, excavated between the 1970s and the 1990s. Although they were able to obtain DNA from some of the animals, from which the artifacts were created, the vast majority of DNA came from those who had handled the artifacts 
during and after the excavation. Because remember, during the 70s, especially, um, and even into the 90s, nobody thought about doing DNA testing. So no one thought about the fact that maybe they should be, uh, you know, handling these in a way that was not contaminating them with their own DNA. Uh, nobody thought about that at that point. And so because of that, they weren't able to discern any ancient human samples from all the noise of modern humans. But there was a solution to this. The researchers were able to turn to artifacts that had been collected using gloves and masks and which had not yet been cleaned of surface sediment. Three tooth pendants from Bacho Kiro Cave in Bulgaria, which is the site with the oldest securely dated modern humans to be found in Europe, showed that contamination of modern DNA could be minimized. Unfortunately, though, no ancient human DNA was recoverable on those teeth. They finally made a breakthrough when the archaeologists Maxim Kozlikin and Michael Shunkov, excavating the Denisovan cave without knowing anything about this project, cleanly excavated and isolated a tooth from a deer that had been fashioned into a pendant. The researchers were able to get a hold of the pendant and were shocked at how much DNA they were able to extract. They not only isolated DNA from the Wapiti deer from which the tooth came, but also a large quantity of human DNA. The amount of human DNA we recovered from the pendant was extraordinary, says Essel, almost as if we had sampled a human tooth. They recovered both mitochondrial and nuclear DNA from the pendant. They found that the majority of the DNA belonged to a single individual, and using an analysis of both the deer and human DNA, they were able to estimate the age of the pendant to be between 19,000 and 25,000 years old, without having to take a sample for radiocarbon dating. Now, based on the recovered nuclear DNA and the abundance of X chromosomes present, they concluded that the owner was most likely biologically female. They discovered that the person was related to other individuals from further east in Siberia, referred to as the ancient North Eurasians. And so that was actually a bit of a surprise for people, but it is so cool that they were able to be able to pin that down so precisely. And so the researchers now hope to turn to the wealth of other ancient bone and tooth objects from the Neolithic to see if they can use the technique on these items so that we can better develop an understanding of their culture. And so that is really, really cool because as they noted, it's often hard to figure these things out because of the lack of specific correlations between grave goods and physical remains. And so things like this are very exciting and can potentially be really groundbreaking. So let's move from uh, gathering information from deer teeth about humans to gathering information from human teeth about the ancient microbiome. 
And so researchers are now looking at ancient human teeth in order to learn more about the bacteria that they shared their lives with. Researchers looked at the teeth of a woman referred to as the Red Lady due to having been buried with pieces of ochre in a cave known as El Miron in Spain around 19,000 years ago. So roughly around the same time period as the Denisovan woman would have been wearing her pendant. And so I know I've talked about it several times before, but uh, ochre, sort of red ochre, um, is something that is one of the oldest ritualistic materials known to be associated with humans um, and hominids. And so it is something that is very deep time. Um, you find it all over places that have ancient remains, caves in South Africa, caves in Spain, everywhere um, that you find humans, you find ochre for the most part. And so um, it is a really interesting thing that it was such a kind of universal uh, ritual tool, but it didn't really tell us much more than that. Um, again, just the pieces of ochre or the bones being stained with ochre doesn't tell us much of anything about them except that they were uh, people who were associating this with uh, the importance of death and um, burial. But luckily for researchers, our ancient ancestors weren't very good about oral hygiene. Now, of course, Obviously, they didn't have access to uh, toothbrushes and uh, fluoridated water and uh, toothpaste and all of these things. Uh, and they also didn't live all that long often, so they didn't have time to really worry about their teeth, uh, unfortunately, in some respects. And they also had a better diet uh, than we do, so there are a lot of reasons why uh, their teeth are not as well kept up as ours. But this gave uh, the researchers the opportunity to extract dental calculus or plaque from the teeth and recover DNA from the bacteria that would have lived in the mouth of not only the red lady, but many of her companions. And so again, reporting in science, the team writes that the DNA reconstruction was so good that they were able to replicate the enzymes the bacteria would have produced to help digest nutrients. Just a fact that they were able to reconstruct the genome from a puzzle with millions of pieces is a great achievement, said Gary Taranzos, an environmental microbiologist at the University of Puerto Rico, who wasn't involved in the work. It's Hold my beer and watch me do it. And boy, did they do it. I love that quote. <laughs> the modern human microbiome is quite different from our ancient ancestors. The advent of antibiotics and changes to our diet have dramatically shifted our microbiome, notes University of Trento computational biologist Nicholas Sagata, who also wasn't involved in the present study. He notes that studying these ancient microbes 
will help us identify what functions our microbiome might have had in the past that we might have lost. Researchers note that this work may ultimately lead to the discovery of new treatments for disease. Previous work has allowed for sequencing ancient DNA that gave us insight into the ancient microbiome of ancient mouths and guts, but we were constantly having to compare these to modern microbes as references. We were limited to bacteria we know from today, says Harvard University geneticist Christina Werner, a co-author of the new study. We were ignoring vast amounts of DNA from unknown or possibly extinct organisms. So basically, uh, when piecing together ancient DNA, they only had the blueprints of modern bacteria as sort of the picture on the box of a puzzle. And all of the pieces that didn't look like those modern bacteria had to be piled up in the box, waiting for a better picture to emerge. And in fact, it took Warner's team almost three years to adapt current tools and computer algorithms to work with the shorter fragments found in ancient DNA samples. But using dental calculus from 46 ancient skeletons, including Neanderthals and modern humans who died between 30,000 and 150 years ago, the team were able to identify DNA from dozens of extinct or previously unknown oral bacteria. For their next breakthrough, the team was able to edit at modern Pseudomonas protogens bacteria with two ancient genes that allowed them to make proteins that produce a molecule called a furin. Modern bacteria are thought to use furins for cellular signaling, and the new work suggests ancient bacteria did the same. We'd never have been able to tell that just from the DNA sequenced, though. It's wet lab proof of what ancient genes were capable of, says Pierre Stalforth of the Leibniz Institute for Natural Product Research and Infection Biology. You can predict proteins based on DNA, but not necessarily the molecules those proteins are going to make. Now, this is really fascinating. The microbe that they were able to sequence actually came as a surprise. It was identified as a type of bacterium called a chlorobium. And as its name might suggest, its modern relatives use photosynthesis and survive on small amounts of light in anaerobic conditions such as stagnant water. They may have either been from found in the teeth because of the water people were drinking near caves, or they might have been a part of the microbiome that lived off the faint light that penetrates the cheeks. Either way, they disappeared from the record of teeth around 10,000 years ago. Now, it turns out clearly that if you want to aid future archaeologists and biologists to learn more about the current microbiome, Apparently, the best thing to do is to stop brushing your teeth, but I am, of course, not recommending that. Oral calculus is the perfect example of the best place you can find an uncontaminated sample, Taranzo says. There's absolutely no way anything from the outside will get in. 
And so, yeah. (laughs) But they also wanted to note that this isn't bringing back these microbes. So there's no cause for worry about unintended consequences. They've simply modified a couple of modern bacteria to produce a few chemical compounds in order to be able to study them. Um, Because, of course, someone always asks about the Jurassic Park angle, because, of course, they do. (laughs) But the ancient microbiome may have played an important part in digestion and immune response that has been lost but which we've still, we're still evolutionary equipped to be seeking. So of course, the microbiome evolves along with people. And so it might be that some of these things would have been beneficial to us if we still had them. Bacteria are not as charismatic as mammoths or woolly rhinos, Warner says, but they are nature's chemists and they're key to understanding the past. Okay, it is about that time when we take a break to do some show promos and PSAs. And when we come back, we're going to go back even further in time to check in once more with the Tully Monster. So do stay tuned for that. You are listening to Evidence Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have 
our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and as I noted, we are now going to turn our... uh, turn ourselves to talking about the Tully monster. And so this is a fossil that has been puzzling scientists since the very first day it was discovered. Tully monstrum gregarium, or Tully's common monster, is the state fossil of Illinois. It's a weird creature with stocked eyes and a long, nose-like appendage with teeth. It's commonly referred to as the Tully Monster, after Francis Tully, an amateur fossil collector who discovered the six-inch long specimen in 1955 in the Mason Creek fossil beds in the state. It's also the only place the animal has ever been found. And so he brought the specimen, which looks kind of to me like a squid with an elephant trunk and eyes kind of like a hammerhead shark. Um, Yeah, (laughs) it's it's a weird one. He took it to the Field Museum in Chicago, where it stumped researchers there, too. And this then started a decades-long debate as to whether the creature was a vertebrate or an invertebrate. And so, writing in the journal Nature, a team of Japanese scientists believe they have solved the debate and are confident, after studying 3D scans of 153 fossils, that the creature is indeed an invertebrate. Because of the weird morphology of the creature, they really can't be easily compared to other organisms, and thus they've been compared to a whole host of different groups, including gastropods, polychaetes or segmented marine worms, and nectocarids, a squid-like Cambrian organism, uh, as well as a host of other things. I think they look most like a squid with an elephant trunk. <laughs> personally, but you know. In fact, if they turned out to be a vertebrate, they would fill in a critical gap, quote unquote, in evolutionary history, which would connect jawless fish like lampreys and hagfish to jawed fish, which is why the vertebrate uh, camp is still holding out hope. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, 
And so people really want them to be a vertebrate. But of course, this is science. So if they're not, they're not. Um, but because there's still room for uh, discussion, even though our f- our friends here uh, believe that they have made a definitive uh, um, identification, <laughs> we'll see that there are still uh, answers that are not quite there yet. Um, this is definitely one of those great kind of scientific debates because it's not over something that's actually fraught and politicized. It's just over whether or not a fossil is a vertebrate or an invertebrate. And it shows all of the sort of back and forths of science where, you know, one paper is published and then another paper is published and then a third paper is published and it goes back and forth and back and forth. This is the kind of robust scientific uh, work that we are wanting to see because this shows the best of science. People wrangling with a really hard problem and constantly trying to throw better and newer technology at things in order to get newer and better information. And this is, you know, it's a, it's a small thing, but it's just got so much richness to it in the ways in which science is brought to bear on it. And so um, I definitely love the Tully Monster uh, debate. Um, it, of course, reminds me a little bit of hallucinogens, uh, which is a organism that for years and years and years people thought uh, should be one way. And then they were describing it and being like, I don't get it. And then someday... A person was like, hey, if you flip it over, oh, it makes so much more sense now. (laughs) So, yeah, it's a little bit like that, but um, it is definitely still a open question. But let's talk about the conclusions here, because um, I think they make some really good points. And so just because the jury is still technically out doesn't mean that there isn't really good arguments to be talked about here. And so the vertebrate side favors two papers produced in 2016. The first is a detailed morphological study and the other concentrates on the creature's eye anatomy. The first study claimed that the Tully monster has a rod made of cartilage or a notochord similar to a backbone multiple rows of piercing teeth next to the mouth, similar to lampreys, an elongated body with with tail fins and gill pouches. They followed up this review with another study in 2020 using Raman microspectroscopy to back up their findings, which were replicated in a 2022 study. So that seems pretty promising. The second study looked at the melanosomes or pigment granules in the eyes and suggested that they were arranged by shape and size in a similar fashion to vertebrate eyes. But a 2019 study that looked at the chemical makeup of samples from both telemonsters and modern animals found that certain invertebrates, such as octopus and squid, also have the same eye structure, which lowered the certainty of the initial conclusion that it was 
actually uh, more indicative of a vertebrate. Interestingly, the copper found they actually they also found that the ratio of zinc to copper in their eyes was more similar to that found in invertebrates. But interestingly, the copper found in the Tully monster's eyes is different from both invertebrates and vertebrates. So again, it is a weird little mystery. <laughs> now, the newest study is bolstered by the remarkable preservation of Mason Creek fossils. The area features creatures that were rapidly buried in these in a silty outwash with a unique chemistry that encased the creatures in a crust of ciderite and slowed decay. When I saw the specimens in the museum, I realized there are minute surface irregularities that have never been studied in detail, co-author Tomoyuki Mikami, a graduate student at the University of Tokyo at the time of the study, and now with the National Museum of Nature and Science, told Scientific American. I thought these could probably be a clue to understanding the Tully monster. And so... The team compared 153 Tully monster remains, along with 74 other animal fossils found at the site. They used a 3D laser scanner to produce 3D color-coded maps that would allow them to better visualize those minute surface irregularities noticed by Mikami via variations in color. Previously, the technique had been used on dinosaur footprints. They also employed X-ray micro cat scans to create a 3D model of the animal in order to better study the proboscis and other features. The proboscis, excuse me. Their main conclusion was that the Tully's body segmentation was clearly different from vertebrates as the segmentation extended in front of its eyes. They found that features believed to have been discovered in 2016, like gill pouches and fin rays, were either missing or not structurally similar to those found in vertebrates. They also suggested that the proboscis and tooth-like features are inconsistent with the keratinous teeth of vertebrates such as lampreys and hagfish. We believe that the mystery of it being an invertebrate or vertebrate has been solved, said Mikami. Based on multiple lines of evidence, the vertebrate hypothesis of the Tully monster is untenable. The most important point is that the Tully monster has segmentation in its head region that extends from its body. This characteristic is not known in any vertebrate lineage, suggesting a non-vertebrate affinity. Of course, they're less clear on what affinity to invertebrates it might have been, uh, so it still remains an outlier. Uh, just because they think it's an invertebrate doesn't mean they actually have any idea what kind of invertebrate it is. <laughs> Um, because again, it is one of those weird, weird animals. Uh, you know, one of the things about evolution is that it is not a straight line 
and it has a lot of uh, swirls and dead ends and roundabouts. And um, yeah, so evolution has tried a lot of weird stuff. I mean, most of it in the Cambrian. Um, I'm sure you've seen uh, illustrations of uh, artists' renditions of animals slash plants from the Cambrian since half the time you can't tell if something is an animal or a plant in the Cambrian. <laughs> it's it's real hard to tell whether or not they're actually um there's I've talked about that in the past of there are certain Cambrian fossils that we can't even tell if they're animal, uh vegetable or mineral, never mind whether they're an invertebrate or a vertebrate. Um, well, in that case, they'd be an invertebrate because I don't think uh, vertebrates develop until after the Cambrian. Um, but still, uh, definitely there is a lot going on there. And so, yeah, they're pretty sure that they are uh, invertebrates. But while many find the study interesting, they aren't quite convinced the matter is really settled, including Victoria McCoy, a co-author of the 2016 morphology paper. She told Ars Technica, I was very interested to see the application of 3D imaging techniques to telemonster fossils. I was particularly excited to see the 3D reconstructions of the teeth which really helped clarify their morphology. In general, it is very difficult to interpret the preserved morphology of any Mason Creek organisms, including the telemonster, and these type of 3D imaging methods may help with that. However, we are still left with a key set of interpretations, she added. The telemonster was a segmented animal and had W or V-shaped segments with protonaceous teeth and two different morphologies of melanosomes in its eyes. The only phylum that really fits this set of features is the chordates. Within the chordates, the large body size and large complex eyes of the telemonster are most consistent in general with a vertebrate identity. However, some of the issues raised in this paper, such as the suggestion that the tele may have may have segments in front of its eye bar do strengthen the case for a non-vertebrate chordate affinity. So yeah, um, there is still some, uh, you know, debate. <laughs> uh, people do pick their sides, but I do like the fact that obviously, even though, uh, you know, McCoy would still like to be on the vertebrate side, She's willing to concede that there are, you know, real things here. And if we do really confirm that it has segments in front of the eye bar, that's a big blow to the vertebrate side. So we'll have to see if this is uh, confirmed in the future and if we finally can put the debate uh, to rest as to whether or not the telemonster is an invertebrate or a vertebrate. Okay, let us uh, move on now and talk about another uh, exciting animal cognition story. Um, Longtime listeners will know that that is like one of my favorite things in the world. 
So despite having relatively small brains compared to body size, giraffes are capable of some fairly interesting uh, probability thinking. Previously, besides humans, who actually can be pretty bad at at times, uh, the only other animals to have been found to understand probabilities are other primates, primates and the kia, those ridiculously cute ground parrots from New Zealand. Um, if you have not seen the David Attenborough clip with uh, kias, you, you, you're missing out. Um, and so all of those animals have relatively large brain-to-body ratios, unlike the giraffe. Now, one of the challenges involved with testing for this is that probability needs to be separated from basic numeracy. So, for instance, there's a difference between choosing between different lines in a grocery store based on the raw number of people in line versus estimating that one checker is faster than another, and thus there's a better chance that despite having more overall people in their line, they'll get you out faster. The first is basic numeracy, and the second is probability. You're kind of comparing different uh, options and deciding that you have a better chance of success. Researchers use a protocol where they start with a mixture of things that animals desire and those that they're neutral to, and then they vary the number and ratio of both items. So for giraffes, they used carrots and zucchini. Giraffes will always prefer carrots. I would always prefer carrots as well, even though I don't really like either. (laughs) So first, the researchers would show the animals tubs of mixtures of the two vegetables and then grab a single item from each with the giraffe not being able to tell which item was picked. They would then be shown two hands holding items and they would gesture with their head at the hand that they thought held that prized carrot. The basic setup had one tub with 20 carrots and 80 zucchini and the other had 80 carrots and 20 pieces of zucchini. All four giraffes in the study were able to get a carrot at least 17 times out of the 20 trials. And they didn't need any, like, testing. They just did it. Um, Or trial runs. To test that this wasn't just counting the carrots, the next test involved a tub with 20 carrots and four zucchini, over 20 carrots with 100 zucchini. And so if they were just counting for a number of carrots, since those were equivalent, they wouldn't necessarily always go for the one with only four zucchini. But they still preferred the tub with those four zucchini. They then tested to make sure that they weren't just avoiding the zucchini, but they also passed that test as well. And again, they did this without any practice rounds, which is pretty cool. But the next experiment got trickier. The tub was then divided in half, but the researchers could only choose from the top half of the tub. So even though the whole tub had one set of odds, the top had another. This was to test the integration of spatial reasoning with probabilistic evaluations. Three giraffe were confused through several rounds, 
though the fourth figured it out after only one try, and then kept getting the carrot every time. They also ruled out that the giraffes were just smelling the food or watching the food, which was added to the hand. All in all, they did as well, pretty much as well as chimps, despite having a brain to body measure or encephalization quotient of 0.64, less than half that of primates and parrots. The researchers suggest two explanations that can both be part of the puzzle. One is that probabilistic reasoning is more common in animals and we just haven't looked hard enough for it. Or it could be that based on the lifestyle of giraffes, which involves both complex herd dynamics and varying food sources, such thinking might be promoted despite the fact that the brain is small. It also shows that probabilistic reasoning doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with other kinds of knowledge, as seen in the test with the dividers. Though apparently, Kias were quite good at that task. As for the why the one giraffe got it and the others didn't, uh, the jury's still out on that. We're not quite sure what that means. <laughs> um, and just as a uh, quick ending tonight, um, I hope that you have heard about the study that gave um, parrots the ability to call one another and socialize. Um, I thought that was such a cool study and um, the the results were totally uh, made complete sense to me that parrots would want to be social uh, with friends because, um, you know, animals that have higher cognition, I I would suspect, and of course it's, and it's an unscientific hypothesis, but I would suspect would prefer to have um, contact with other uh, beings that they can interact with. And so um, it was just a really cool little study where they um, gave them the ability to uh, ask their owners to call uh, different uh, birds in the study. And some of them became like really, really good friends and would always call the other, that particular other parrot. They would sing to each other. They would groom with one another. Some of them apparently liked to sleep next to one another while the um, video was on. And so this is all on video chat. And I just thought that was so heartwarming and adorable. And, um, you know, it really shows that parrots are complex animals that, you know, the problem is, is that often people have one parrot and while they can interact with you when you're not around, things like that, they probably get pretty lonely. Um, you know, one of the reasons that I don't have a parrot besides the fact that I have cats, um, though, you know, obviously if we had raised them together, that might've been okay, um, is that they live so long. And so at this point I would long, I would die long before a parrot would die. And that just doesn't feel fair to them. Um, and so I just thought it was so cool to be able to see these parrots. If you can find, um, the videos, it's, it's really heartwarming to see these parrots like light up when they get a phone call from their friend or their friend or their friend's human picks up. And, um, yeah. All right. 
So that is all the time we do have for tonight. Uh, Thank you so much. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.